BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We were talking earlier about the police riots, is how I refer to these things, the police rioting in the streets, principally against people who are protesting the treatment of African-Americans and other minorities in the United States at the hands of police. And it sparked this huge conversation about over-policing, the nature of policing, defunding policing, repeal and replace policing. One of the things that we're not seeing, though, I mean, while we're seeing all these pictures and videos of police killing people, harassing people, beating people of color by and large, one of the things that we're not seeing is what's being done to black people in our schools, black children, and the over-policing of our schools as well. Judith Brown Dianis is the executive director of the Advancement Project. Advancementproject.org is the website. Judith Brown Dianis' Twitter handle is jbrowndianis, and the Advancement Project is at ADV underscore project. Judith, welcome to the program. Tell me about, first of all, for people who may not be familiar with the Advancement Project, tell us about your group overall, and then let's get into what you're doing with regard to policing in our schools. Sure. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, So Advancement Project is a national racial justice organization. We are the lawyers to the movement, but we also do communications and organizing strategy. Our whole piece is that what we want to do is build power in communities of color so that we can dismantle structural racism. So we work across the country on issues around educational equity. We also work on police free schools. So we, with along with another organization called the Alliance for Educational Justice, which is an alliance of youth organizing groups across the country, have a campaign called Police Free Schools. For 20 years, Advancement Project has been working to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, which started off with trying to stop the overuse of suspensions in our school that push young people out of school. And pretty quickly in, in doing that work with grassroots organizations, we figured out that there was actually a more ominous trend, that actually young people were being pushed not only from their schools into suspensions, but they were being pushed directly into the juvenile and criminal legal system by the very mere presence of police in schools. So if you look at what happens in schools, we know that black students are uh, arrested at higher rates. Black students represent 13% of student population across this country, but 31% of arrests 
They are also not just arrested, but we've seen many instances of excessive use of force in schools against black students, black boys and black girls. And so our work has been supporting grassroots organizations, again, students, I'm talking about like high school and middle school students who are pushing to put police out of their schools so that they can have learning environments where they can thrive. How did police get in our schools? I mean, I'm an old fart, I guess. I was in school Mm -hmm. in the the 1950s and 1960s, and it was a, you know, lower middle class suburb, but it was an all white suburb. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, you want to see what the world would look like, you know, with police reforms, just look at any white suburb. I never once saw a police officer in all the years I was in school until I got kicked out of high school for publishing an underground newspaper <laughs> and they called the police. And, and that was like, you know, slap on the wrist, you know, go home. And of course, that was in, you know, 1966, I think it was. So where did all this come from? How, how did we end up with cops in our schools, particularly in schools that have large minority populations? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the 50s because that's when we started to see police being put in schools and actually in reaction to student protests. So we actually have a website called WeCameToLearn.com. CameToLearn.com. It has a whole history of police and schools on it. And one of the things we know is that it started with police protests, but then in the 90s, in response to kind of the war on drugs and the crime bill, is where we started to see an increase in police and schools because there was an increase in funding for police and schools. So everything that triggered what is now considered mass incarceration also triggered the proliferation of police in our schools, so much so that people may not know that not only does the federal government and state and local pay for local police to be in schools as what they call school resource officers, but there are school districts that actually have their own police departments. And so those are police departments with a police chief, with cruisers and drug-sniffing dogs and tanks that they got from the federal government. Wait a minute, Judith, are you talking about colleges or are you talking about high schools? No, I'm talking. No, I'm talking about high schools. I'm talking about school districts, K through twelve school districts that actually have their own police departments and spend millions and millions of dollars on it. And part of our challenge now is to rethink safety and to think about how do we put that money that we've been spending on police? Because when police are in schools, they will do what they're charged with doing, which is enforcing the criminal code. And so that's what the push has been: has been to get that money back to invest in young people. This is remarkable. It's like the old black codes have been reinvented in our schools in a way. You say that the Advancement Project is the lawyers to the movement. Obviously, there's a political conversation to be had here, which we're talking about, I suppose. But what are what's the legal strategy for undoing this? Or is there one? Well, uh, yeah, there. I mean, there really isn't. Other than what we use for regular police misconduct cases, as we know, it's very difficult to sue police departments, and so that there's there is a lack of accountability across the board, and that includes in the school setting. Police often say they were doing their job; they felt threatened, and so they used excessive use of force. And so, what we are doing instead is we are mounting organizing campaigns. Young people who are in the lead of those campaigns who are pushing on their parents and their school boards to get police out of school. So it is very much a political organizing campaign with young people leading the way. And how can 
how can people participate in this? In particular, you know, white allies who would like to see police out sure. of our schools. Go ahead. So there's a few things. One is two of our, our websites, we have wecametolearn.com, which has a report on it that details the presence of police and some of the strategies for getting police out of schools. And then we just launched a new website called policefreeschool.org. And there what we're doing is we're going to be collecting the resolutions that school boards have passed so that people can replicate them in their own backyards. Because now we have several school districts, not only Minneapolis, but Denver, where we've supported projects in Hovindas Unidos for 20 years, just got police out of schools. Oakland had a huge victory where black organizing project was able to actually not just get police out of schools, but they eliminated the school police department altogether. So we've seen about hmm. 10 places where the least free schools has won. And so we will be documenting that and people will have templates where they can take it and run with it. That's absolutely extraordinary. Advancementproject.org is the website. We've been talking with Judith Brown Dianas, who is the executive director. Judith, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you, and I, I hope this Thank goes far and so has great time. success. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. This is such important stuff. It really is. Thank you, Judith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Helping you win the water cooler wars. Tom Hartman here with you. Stick around. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just a couple of quick stories here that I think you would want to know about. My friend Jim Turr flagged this for me earlier in the week. Wanted to see how it shook out. There's a, a restaurant in Santa Fe, New Mexico called India Palace. Bajit Singh, it's owned by an Indian family, as in from India. And uh, when he came into work on Monday, he, uh, the article, this article here from, uh, this is from Daily Kos actually, says he was uh, in shock. His restaurant was completely destroyed with racial slurs covering the walls. White power, go home, and Trump 2020 were painted and spray painted all over the walls, the doors, the counters, and other surfaces. The religious statues were beheaded, items were stolen. He's owned the restaurant uh, for seven years now. He says the damage is probably more than $100,000. One of the really mind-boggling things is that uh, Bajit Singh, the owner of the India Palace restaurant in Santa Fe, has been preparing weekly care packages with some of his own food and other things for the local homeless. He said, we do a bag full of food and hygiene products and we throw in cash, typically five or $10 into each one of the bags and they take them out and give them to homeless people. Well, these asses who destroyed this restaurant, spray painting white power and Trump 2020 all over it, stole that stuff. They stole the bags for the homeless. Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber said this is a sickening and appalling hate crime. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham shared similar sentiments. She said, I am absolutely heartbroken and disgusted by this racist attack. We will not stand for such hatred in New Mexico. CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, said, 
This is Ibrahim Hooper. He's been on our program many, many times. He said, we call on President Trump, whose name was used by the hate vandals to stop promoting bigotry and division. Right. Yeah, that'll happen when pigs fly. But anyway, they put together a GoFundMe page, tried to raise $50,000 to put the restaurant back together. They hit their goal on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, and now they're trying to raise a little bit more to actually, you know, over $100,000 with the damage done. And, you know, plus, you know, funding what they're doing. So just a FYI, particularly if you're in Santa Fe, but I think more generally. And a very troubling story. This was on Raw Story. I don't know if it's still up right now, but they've got video of there was a protest going on in Columbus, Ohio. And on the fringe, on the periphery of this protest, suddenly this black van shows up. A bunch of guys with guns jump out. They snatch this one guy near whom the van stopped, shove him in the van, and take off. Now, this is what Pinochet used to do in Chile when he would kidnap political opponents and then throw them out of helicopters. We have no idea who this person was who was snatched. I mean, maybe it's been updated since then, but at the moment, I don't have any idea. Or what they did to him or with him. But this is not America. Or maybe this is America, in which case we've got a big problem. Mark Taylor Canfield in uh, Seattle. Hey, Mark, I know you've been uh, reporting on the CHOP on the uh, Capitol Hill uh, region that that has uh, kind of declared its independence. I know that the uh, mayor says that she's going to take it apart. You've got bulldozers down the street. What's going on? Well, at a press briefing on Monday, Police Chief Carmen Best announced that the Seattle Police Department doesn't want to use batons or guns on protesters, but she claims that the city council had, quote, legislated away, unquote, their option of using tear gas, rubber bullets, flashbang grenades, and other crowd control weapons. So even though she's under a court temporary injunction and also a city council ban, she asked for the reinstatement of those devices in an attempt to remilitarize the police department. Mayor Jenny Durkin announced that the SPD will reoccupy the abandoned East Precinct where the protesters have held vigils 24-7 for several weeks now, about 16 or 17 days. Folks have been marching to the West Precinct every day. They've been Now, this is in the wake, Mark, of two people getting shot in there. Actually, four people. Um, one guy drove his uh, car into the protest, wielding a weapon, shot one man. Two other people were shot in what looks like a random uh, act of violence. And then a fourth man was shot. He just spoke from the hospital the other day, says that he was attacked by white supremacists. But Dustin Durkin have used this mm. scenario that Trump was using, that this is a very dangerous place, to uh, crack down. And so they say they're going to clear it out. Now, this morning... Uh, the DOT trucks, the Department of Transportation trucks, showed up to remove the concrete barriers, which the city actually had put in front of the police um, department. And protesters laid down in front of the front loader and refused to let them do that. So the, the latest is, is that the city has given the protesters 72 hours to figure out what they want to do and how to organize themselves. And I was down there yesterday at the General Assembly, Tom, and folks are talking about wanting to... They have a list of demands. Obviously, they want to defund the Seattle Police Department by 50%. They want to use that money to fund black and brown communities that have been redlined in Seattle. And they want all charges dropped against protesters who have been arrested. Now, uh, City Attorney Pete Holm, who's a very progressive kind of guy, he says he probably probably will drop those charges Teresa Mosqueda and the city council uh, president, Lorena Gonzalez, say they're behind and Shamaswan are behind defunding the police department by 50 percent. 
Um, but those demands have not been met yet. They've also asked for the resignation of Jenny Durkin for failing to rein in the police. And the big thing, they want to turn the East Precinct into a community center. And that's got a long history in Seattle. The Central Area Motivation Program is an old fire station that black ac- activists occupied and turned into a community center. Uh, El Centro de la Raza, the Lat- Latino community took over that building, occupied it, got the city to turn on the lights and water, turned it into a community center. Um, the Daystar Tribal Center um, and the African American Heritage Museum both were gained by people occupying those spaces until the city finally gave them the property. So that's the plan at, at this point at CHOP, but people are organizing right now to figure out how they're going to get this done. Meanwhile, the police department and the mayor seem to be completely unrepentant after more than 15,000 complaints were filed against them during these protests. But you won't hear that addressed by the mayor or Carmen Best because, unfortunately, they've kind of adopted Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting and Donald Trump's political dialogue about all this, saying that it's a dangerous place and, you know, needs to be cleared out. Yeah, it's going to be a long week. Mark, thanks for the report. You're listening to Tom Hartman. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. 
I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. John in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, or Joan, excuse me. Joan, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I wanted to talk to you about the elephant in the room. We have court cases of police and blacks and other people. And the persons that are responsible are the everyday people of this country, the men and women, all of the citizens. And they have, I'm sure, a fear of reprisal or retribution or a lot of flack from neighbors and friends if they don't go along with what happens all the time. The police are let free, and the other man is found guilty. And I think there should be a better system in this country in these cases because there's so much discrimination. I think either the decision should be up to the judge or there should be a new group formed with the police in charge of their own selves where they can clean out their nest and get rid of, you know, any hate group people or or the Mm -hmm. bad eggs and have a division that they can be proud of. And we need to do something about it because it's just a terrible travesty to see some people go free that shouldn't and see some people go to prison that shouldn't. And as far as the George Floyd case, Why didn't a person just go up and knock on his car door window and ask him to move his car? It would have saved a life and saved a lot of heartbreak in this country. So I don't know. You're talking about Mr. Brooks, uh, but yes. Yeah, no, I get get what you're saying, Joan. And you have more faith in judges and police departments than I do. My experience suggests that juries are actually a good thing, although the jury system has been used in a very, very racist way, particularly in the South for years and years and that you can't trust a police department to reform itself. You just can't. And I think that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to that effect. But let me just toss one other thing in here before I pick up the next call. The Voting Rights Act was gutted by John Roberts, who claimed in 2013 in the Shelby County case that there is no more racism in America. He, honest to God, said words to that effect. And the proof in his mind was the fact that a black man was in the White House. And so, therefore, the southern states that have historically enforced their laws having to do with who can vote and who can't, and their systems about who finds it easy to vote and who finds it hard to vote, that federal oversight can end now. That was in 2013. 24 hours later, you had states like South Carolina and Georgia shutting down polling places in black neighborhoods. 24 hours later, purging people off voting lists, millions of people, black people by and large, off voting lists. So, you know, there are a lot of us who are saying, you know, wouldn't it be a good thing to repass the Voting Rights Act? The Voting Rights Act was passed, you know, originally back in the 1960s. It was passed by, um, I believe, 
it was passed in a way that requires by reconciliation, a way that requires periodic or every 10 years needs to be repassed. It had most recently been prior to the Shelby County decision within the previous 10 years. It had been ratified by the Senate unanimously. And John Roberts said, well, the reason for that is because there's a bunch of senators who don't want to be called racists. Again, honest to God, I mean, you can read the decision. Well, obviously, gutting the Voting Rights Act was a huge mistake, and we need the Voting Rights Act back. And 200 days ago, Democrats introduced it into the United States Senate and said to Mitch McConnell, please allow us to have a debate and a vote. This was passed unanimously back in 2003 during the Bush administration, and we would like a chance to revisit this. Actually, I'm not sure if it was 2003, whatever the year was. And Mitch McConnell has said no. Not going to happen. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has appointed and the Senate has confirmed 200 judges, the many Supreme Court judges, the U.S. District Courts all across the United States, more judges than any president in the history of the United States because McConnell, for the last three years of the Obama administration, refused basically to appoint any judges to the point that John Roberts wrote a letter to Mitch McConnell in the Senate back in the last year of the Obama administration saying this is a crisis for the federal judiciary, that you're not allowing new judges to be appointed. McConnell was like, eh, tough luck. So, you know, most recently, in fact, the very last nominee was just, you know, another one of these white conservative guys with very sketchy racial records. Not a single black judge nominated or appointed. Virtually all men virtually all white, zero black judges, and this is where we're at. And Mitch McConnell will not even allow a conversation about the Voting Rights Act. If you would like to lean on your Republican senator about this, the number for the United States Senate for the Capitol Hill is 202-225-3121. And just call up and say, you know, hey, I'd like to speak to my senator. You know, if you're calling from Utah, I'd like to speak to Mitt Romney. If you're calling from, you know, well, fill in the blank, right? So anyhow, that, that's, there's your issue for the day. Annika in Portland, Oregon. Am I saying your name right? Yeah. Hi. Thank you, Tom. Hi. I'm really thankful for your show. And I just wanted to say a couple things. You asked Ms. Judith Brown, Dianis, about when we started coming into schools. I'm a millennial, mm-hmm. and I was in fifth grade. I'm from a lily white town called Novato, California. And my mm-hmm. family had a point of sister, so we were literally like one of three of the black people in the town. And I graduated from a program called DARE, Drug Abuse Resistance Education, and it was run by the police department. So that was how the police, as I know, were introduced into the school program. And that was the fifth grade, so that was elementary school. So um, I wanted to share that to answer your question. And so I wanted to share my prognostication about with the Donald Trump situation. It seems to me that he's just a psychopath and a sociopath, as we know. I'm not surprised by his behaviors anymore. And I think he's like a pie piper. He's leading his own base off of a cliff. And I don't understand why they're not seeing that. But once they start getting sick and his base starts dying off, then I think that they're going to things are going to really start changing. I really do. I think that they felt that, that they were going to be protected by, you know, the Republican states and, and that this was just going to affect people of color. And now it's hitting the red states and things are going to 
start imploding there. And I feel that he's in jeopardy with his safety with the Russian government. And I think he's going to go to federal prison. Yeah, he's acting out. That's my take on things. He's, yeah. he's not intelligent, but he's cunning. And he has right. debt. Slide, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And But uh, Putin is smarter than him. And we also have somebody who used to work for the CIA taking asylum there. We have to take that into consideration. And we haven't given him a free trial. So, you know, uh, there's some things going on there. So I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Annika, I think you're right. And I think that Trump... Right? I believe that his strategy is chaos, and frankly, always has been. I think it's been his business strategy throughout his life, and it it has occasionally served him well. It's probably hurt him more often than it's helped him. But his default mode is just, you know, create create a disaster and do it in the media. Yeah. Do it in a way that's very, very famous. I mean, frankly, I think this is what he did with his marriages. I mean, yeah, just... yeah, it is. But it's like the Roman Empire. I mean, he's like Caligula, you know. Yeah. The damage that he's doing to our country is the thing that just just causes me so much, you know, pain. I mean, it's just I'm looking and there and this outreach to, to young white people to try and turn them into flaming, screaming racists is just. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's, just, it's, I know. it's awful. Hopefully Annika, I got to run. But thank yeah. you for the call. Yeah. Thank you for the call. And thanks for uh, watching us here in Portland. It's great to hear from you. It's the Tom Hartman program occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week right here. Stick around. We'll be right back. Our book today is Just Another N-Word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. His life in the um, in the Black Panther Party. This is from Chapter 5, page 47. Uh, the chapter is titled Use What You Got to Get What You Need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering, other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff, for the first time. The only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action. He suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had practically memorized his, his essay, The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example. And so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After a long, hot summer of 1967, with the rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had, at least, put us on the same level as the rest of the country, and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people, and we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although it came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up the fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new surprising experience. We met our first resistance in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest N-word on Hunter's Point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. 
He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. When we examine the history of repression of black people, the only time there was significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunter's Point Rebellion of the year before, and a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that, we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad N-words. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration. Several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons, and so I fixed a rendezvous for the following Saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of Hunter's Point. The next day, I arrived at the point at 7 in the morning in order to get set up before people began to gather. There wasn't going to be any target practice, but I would be firing a few shots in the air by way of demonstration. I knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned. Due to their racism, whenever they heard shots on the point, they generally looked the other way. Once, during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out, and instead of police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. The gun battle lasted 24 hours, and the police didn't return until the next day. At around 8 o'clock, I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emery Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear that something was wrong. Damn, Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out in the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout, Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who had been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't. And I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out safely. That might sound easy, but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before, and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded, so it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement, he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, if you don't come out of there, I'm going to call the police. I began to panic and told David to say something to the woman. When he rose up, she recognized him and calmed down. This was David's house, and she was his neighbor. On the one hand, I was relieved, but on the other, if the police were looking for the passenger who'd been with Huey, it was certain they wouldn't miss David's house, as both were known Panthers. Finally, he found the gun, and it continues from there. Just another N-word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you. It is, uh, what an extraordinary day. The, the idea that the President of the United States was told that another government, a foreign government, was paying 
insurgents, it was paying, well, in this case, specifically the Taliban in Afghanistan, to kill U.S. soldiers, and that according to the Washington Post, at least five U.S. soldiers died as specifically as a result of this is breathtaking. I mean, Benghazi was the death of two diplomats and two security guys in a CIA station, not even an embassy, in a CIA station that had asked for additional security that Republicans in Congress had turned down and the Bush administration had turned down. And the Republicans spent, you know, eight years trying to pin these deaths in Benghazi on Hillary Clinton, who had absolutely nothing to do with it. And here we've got multiple American deaths. And I'm not hearing, you know, Lindsey Graham over the weekend came out. Well, he didn't even come out and say it. He, he went golfing with Donald Trump. Remember, Trump originally tweeted that he wasn't going golfing in Mar-a-Lago or wherever he was planning on going. He said, you know, I'm not going there because I've got to stay here in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and promote law and order. And then it turned out that the golf course that he was going to go to was right in front of a big line of thunderstorms. So instead, he went to another golf course with Lindsey Graham. So as Lindsey Graham is getting ready to go golfing with Trump, the reporters got him and said, what do you think? You know, what do you think about the Russians paying to kill our soldiers in Afghanistan? And Lindsey Graham was like, well, we need better to get to the bottom of it. And then he goes golfing with Trump. So he said something, but as far as I can tell, Kevin McCarthy is still, you know, who's the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, is still blithering. I mean, maybe Mitt Romney has said something, but I'm guessing that Susan Collins is, you know, sitting at home clutching her pearls. She had a threefer, by the way. You know, Brett Kavanaugh had promised her that he was going to respect stare decisis. He was going to respect settled law. He was going to respect previous Supreme Court decisions with regard to abortion. He lied it's pretty incredible when you when you consider, you know, what a fool Kavanaugh made of Susan Collins. You know, he he said he was gonna he was gonna respect precedent. He said, uh, in fact, he said that uh, the precedent is not merely a practice and tradition; it is rooted in Article Three of our Constitution itself. Right. So we got the abortion law. Then, you know, he voted to kick dreamers out of the country. And then he voted to let employers fire LGBTQ people solely on the basis of sexual orientation. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get worse than that. All things that he promised Susan Collins he wasn't going to do. But the bottom line here is Donald Trump is overseeing the dismantling of our government and the replacement, now 200 judges on the federal bench, and the construction of a hardcore right-wing, I would say fascistic, as in merger of corporate and government interests, the government acting on behalf of the very wealthy and the corporate, as opposed to acting on behalf of the people. That's you know, essentially a functioning definition of fascism. This is what Mitch McConnell and the, and the Federalist Society and Donald Trump have been, and the Republican Party have done now with unqualified you know, Republican judge after unqualified Republican judge getting on the courts so that for the next 40 years, even if nobody ever elects another Republican again at the federal level, they can continue to blow up anything the Democrats do. I mean, we've seen this movie before. We saw it there in the first four years of the, of the Roosevelt administration. 
or the Supreme Court struck down minimum wage laws. They struck down child labor laws. It wasn't until they were fixing to strike down Social Security Act that finally, you know, public pressure changed things. So we have an administration that is openly promoting fascism within. And then I believe Donald Trump is trying to promote a civil war. I think he's totally in with the Boogaloo Boys and the whole white supremacist movement to have war in America because it's his last chance. He's got to have something that will distract America from the fact that his bungling stupidity and incompetence has led to the death of 120,000 Americans, soon to be 200,000, certainly by election time, uh, probably over a quarter of a million dead Americans. And now we're seeing people in their 20s and 30s getting strokes and being left permanently disabled and permanently demented, getting heart attacks and being left dead from this COVID disease. Trump's got to figure out a way to distract us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Nothing like a little nice little domestic insurrection to distract everybody from the fact that you're killing them off. We'll be back with your calls after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. On the Science Revolution this week, Dr. Michael Mann with the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University is here on the impact of the Arctic hitting a whopping 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, the hottest temperature on record for the Arctic. Should we be worried? Professor Jeffrey D. Sachs drops by on COVID-19 reversing globalization and the Toxics Program Advocate with U.S. Public Interest Research Group, Danielle Melgar, is on the show. Why are we ignoring rocket fuel in our drinking water? Tune in wherever fine podcasts are available. This is interesting. Fox News abandons vehicle in Seattle protest zone after hitting black man. Fox News. They are trying so hard to to turn the chop, you know, the the Capitol Hill area in, in Seattle into some sort of last stand into an Alamo, you know, a lost cause kind of only in reverse. I mean, you know, it's pretty breathtaking, really, what these guys are up to. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yeah, that's funny, Tom. Uh, that's basically Capitol Hill every day. If it wasn't for the mm-hmm. times we're in, pe- people wouldn't really be, you know, <laughs> that's kind of like, I don't know what the big deal is but uh, about that. But, yeah, they're really, they're really having fun with that. People ought to just hang around, you know, go down to the market, get, get a fish, have them throw a fish at you, and then bring it up to Capitol Hill and have a good time. <laughs> it's just yeah. too funny. Apparently. Well, apparently the thing that, that has got Fox News and the cops all flipped out is that there's an empty police substation there now that, that the people have ta- essentially taken over. Yeah, no. As you know. <laughs> but that's not what you called about. No, I called about 
the situation with Russia putting bounty on the heads of U.S. military service uh, men and women, I'm astonished that all of the talking heads yesterday have soft-pedaled this, and they don't want to say the words, this is a war crime. You cannot personalize killing in war. And the other thing is, why the hell is Russia in it? Apparently, Russia is at war with us because they have no business in the Afghan theater. That's at least as far as that we knew. They're they're not participants, but apparently they are. But well, we had uh, you know in the, in the '60s and '70s, you had the old Soviet Union and China both you know supporting the North Vietnamese too. This is not new, arguably. Well, wait a minute. There's a distinction here, and that funding another group is not the same as personalizing a kill with a bounty. Because the problem with that is why it's personalized, just as bad as torture, is that theoretically the soldier cannot surrender in the battlefield. Because right. if you have a price on your head, oh, good, you're surrendering. I'll just shoot you. There, I get money for that. I get $500,000 for shooting you rather than taking. They don't want prisoners. They want dead. That's what the bounty is. So That's you're, you're supposed to be able to say, I'm just a, a lieutenant or a sergeant or whatever my rank is, my name, rank, my serial number, out on this battlefield, and it's I represent, you know, whatever country, the United States of America, to put a, bounty, a personal bounty on that, on that person's head or just to say you, we're collecting pelts. That's a war crime. And I don't care if Donald Trump knew about it or didn't. We're also being faked out, following the fake on the question, what the hell are you going to do about it now? This, this this deserves severe, immediate action. Not sitting around going, well, did he know about it or didn't he know about it? Okay, he knows about it now. We all know about it. What are you going to do about it? And the, and the answer is nothing. You know what? We take, we take insult after insult upon insult after daily egregious injury from this administration and I think it's time for the, Demo- for the Democratic leadership to simply first call for his resignation. They should do that. Resign immediately. You're incompetent. You brought this country, this nation, to the brink of catastrophe in so many ways. You're a liar and a grifter. Get out of here. And then, we'll, and then throw him out on November 3rd. Yeah. Well, there have been calls for him to resign from, from a number of uh, Democrats. I'm not sure Nancy Pelosi is, has done so. It's conceivable, but I don't recall specifically. But, you know, the idea that this is a war crime, that's a big one. That's an important distinction and a good one. Paul, thank you for that. Judy in Denver. Hey, Judy, what's up? Hi. I just want to remind everybody that the United States invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, basically tried to overthrow the Yemeni government. We're bombing seven to nine countries all the time now have been for years. We are ex- exceptional at killing and destruction, and, and it just horrifies me that it is ignored because nobody talks about it. But we are, we've killed millions of civilians in all these countries. We're still trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government. We overthrew the Bolivian government, a democracy frankly, when they came out finally and said that the election was a legitimate election. There was no fraud. They Tornado came out. Oh, right. 
the OPCW, there, there were four whistleblowers that came out and said, talked about the um, chemical attacks that were a sham in Syria. They were all set up and were not real. So we are being lied to constantly. The CIA helped lie us into invasion of Iraq. So I want proof of Russia paying the Taliban. <clears throat> when we pay al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, even we've helped the Islamic State with weapons and with invasions. The United States helped overthrow the government of Ukraine. So we do not have clean hands or the moral upper hand over Russia. I don't think anybody is asserting that we do, Judy. No. I have not heard that well, assertion from anybody, and, and I don't even think it's implicit in this. The bottom line here is not, you know, is America good and, uh, or, or is America evil and Russia good? The, the bottom line question here is, is Donald Trump as president doing what he can to protect American citizens, particularly those in our military? I agree with your analysis of, you know, America's role in the world. The solution to that is political. The solution to that is to right. change the people who are making those decisions. And, right. and we're, we're, we're all working on that. But when you've got four different independent news organizations, one of them owned by a right-wing right. billionaire, the Wall Street Journal, all independently and all from separate sources, verifying that Donald Trump knew that a foreign government was paying a third party to kill American soldiers, You've got a major scandal having to do with that president. And, you know, you may want proof, Judy, and, and, and good luck. I mean, you know, finding, uh, you know, a source at the CIA is going to talk to you. But there are serious credentialed reporters who have spent their lives doing this kind of work who have seen the proof and who are telling us that it's there. And, and you know, I, I'm willing to believe them. And, yes, you raise important issues. But they are not what this, you know, it's almost like, oh, let's talk about something else. I don't want to talk about something else. I want to talk about Donald Trump, you know, running the presidency as if he was a traitor. We'll be back. We're reading today from Guns for Hire, how the CIA and U.S. Army recruit mercenaries for white Rhodesia in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. 270,000 white settlers, mostly immigrated since World War II, controlled the government and economy, ruling over the 7 million black Africans. The Zimbabweans cannot vote. They have been forced off the bulk of the arable land, and they have no democratic rights whatsoever. All labor performance in Zimbabwe is black labor, and it is intensely exploited, often at less than subsistence wages. Zimbabweans have been fighting European invaders since the early 17th century. Since the 1890s, they have been directly ruled by Europeans, at first in the form of a private British corporation, the British South Africa Company. Since 1923, direct political rule has been in the hands of the white settlers, currently led by Ian Smith and his fascist Rhodesian Front Party. It's important to note that the white settlers were originally given this direct local power as a, quote, self-governing colony of the British government, thereby creating a master-caretaker relationship. During these past 80-odd years, Western imperialism, the multinational corporations of the United States, Britain, and South Africa, has extracted huge profits from the exploited and oppressed Zimbabwean population via the subsidiaries of the Anglo-Americans, Lonro, Amax, AMAX, Union Carbide, Mobile, ITT, and other corporations. 
They fully intend to continue doing so as long as they can. The white settler minority has been rewarded for their violent subjugation of the Zimbabwean people with perhaps the highest national standard of living in the world. Sir Roy Walensky, the former prime minister of the Central African Federation, which included what is now Rhodesia, once said, This man Smith has an appeal. It's the appeal of an easy life. For $6,000 a year, you can have five servants, a swimming pool, and a lot. During the early 1960s, however, the Zimbabwean nationalist forces under the leadership of the Zimbabwe African National Union, ZANU, evolved the strategy of guerrilla war to liberate their people and land. It is proving to be very successful. There are 20,000 guerrillas in base camps in Tanzania and Mozambique, over 3,000 in Zimbabwe itself, and this number is continually rising. In a meeting between Stephen Solars, a U.S. congressman, and the ZANU guerrilla leaders, they were reported to reject the possibility of enlisting the assistance of Cuban or other foreign troops, declaring that if we cannot liberate ourselves, we do not deserve to be liberated. Despite Western propaganda to the effect that the U.S. and British only wish to avoid a bloodshed in Rhodesia, don't forget the Zimbabweans have been bleeding for almost a century, their real fear is that the liberation struggle will win. With this victory in sight, it is not surprising that the counterattack by the Smith regime has become more vicious and brutal. Actually, this must have been published pre-1980, because this is when Smith was still in power in Rhodesia. More than 250,000 rural Zimbabweans have been forced into concentration camps. Terrorist raids have been conducted against Zimbabwean refugees in Mozambique. Dusk-to-dawn shoot-on-site curfews have been instituted and enforced in the border areas. And escalating counterinsurgency attacks have been launched against the military arm of the liberation struggle, the Zimbabwean People's Army, ZIPA. It is crucial for Westerners to understand that the Smith regime has not stood alone in this barbaric campaign. This pamphlet documents the critically important element in U.S. imperialism's support for the Smith regime, white mercenary reinforcements for the fascist Rhodesian, quote, security forces. This flow of U.S. mercenaries to prop up white Rhodesia is an important, though secret, part of U.S. imperialism's strategy for Africa. The U.S. has massive investments in southern Africa. Zimbabwe alone supplies the bulk of high-grade chrome ore used in the U.S. for jet engines and other advanced technological items. Coal, copper, and other minerals are ripped out of Zimbabwe for U.S. industry. Mobile oil, Texaco, Hertz Rent-A-Cars, Holiday Inns, and many other U.S. corporations operate illegally in Rhodesia through foreign subsidiaries. More important still is South Africa, the fortress of U.S. interests in Africa, where $1.5 billion is invested by GM, IBM, Ford, and other giant multinational corporations. The liberation of Zimbabwe would, for the first time, penetrate the buffer zone of satellite countries protecting the borders of South Africa. South African guerrilla fighters, who are already training by the thousands in camps in Tanzania and Zambia, would have direct access to re-enter their land and accelerate the liberation struggle. Knowing that the stakes are high, U.S. imperialism has worked to strengthen the white supremacist outposts in Africa, although at times this had to be done covertly. In 1970, the Nixon White House approved Henry Kissinger's Operation Tar Baby strategy, based on option two of the secret national study, security study memorandum number 39. This strategy essentially called for covert military assistance, including direct exchanges, so the South African troops could be trained in the U.S. in specialized tactics and weapons. This would be done while the U.S. tried to convince Africans that it was on their side. This is from the, the pamphlet number 39, that uh, Kissinger Memorandum. We would maintain public opposition to racial oppression, but relax political isolation and economic restrictions without openly taking a position undermining the United Kingdom and the UN on Rhodesia. 
we would be more flexible in our attitudes for the Smith regime. And it goes on from there. Guns for hire. Okay, the story, the plot thickens, as it were, this over uh, by uh, David Badash from the uh, New Civil Rights Movement. It was reprinted over on Raw Story, which is where I caught it. President Donald Trump engaged in an unprecedented and previously unknown, quote, flurry of communication, end quote, with Russian President Vladimir Putin during a three-week period earlier this year, according to a sister network of Voice of America, uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, this is probably going to be the last time they report this kind of stuff now that Trump has taken over the Voice of America. But anyway, they reported on March 30th, Russian leader Vladimir Putin and U.S. President Donald Trump spoke by telephone. The first of five calls between the two over a period of three weeks, a flurry of communication unprecedented during Trump's three and a half years in office. Only one of those five calls was shared with the press. None were posted to the White House website, a serious deviation from previous practice. Mike Eckel of RFERL, uh, the Radio Free Europe, uh, Radio Liberty, he says, for many Russia watchers, the flurry of behind the scenes phone calls and other communications is a clear indication that something's going on. He noted the two countries' diplomats have spoken at least three times over the same period, which also coincided with an unusual shipment of Russian coronavirus-related humanitarian aid to the United States. Well, this is interesting. Was Trump reaching out, trying desperately trying to get PPE from, from Russia? And apparently he did. Or was this something different and larger? Remarkable. Sandy in Seattle. Hey, Sandy, what's up? Yeah, I wanted to say something about not only police in schools, but security guards. We had an incident mm -hmm. this last March that was reported on KUOW, our other public radio station here about a seven-year-old who the police called security on. From the time the security guard got there, she was totally calm. And the counselor observed this happening where he grabbed her and uh, pushed her against the wall. I'm just kind of quoting. And she was yelling, stop, stop. You're hurting me. Let me go. You're hurting me. I can't breathe. The counselor intervened and was just horrified Quoting her, she says the guy was smashing her face against the wall, her body against the wall. <laughs> she, Renee said she couldn't breathe. The security guard said, stop resisting, I will let you go, and so on, so on. It was just horrible. So, you know, they're talking about getting the, the Seattle Police Department out of the schools, but this is just another big problem, these security guards. So these are red cop guys? You know, I'm not sure if they work for the district or, or what. But um, they are or, yeah. sort of the police call Off -duty them cops. because, yeah, possibly. I, I don't really know yeah. because he was supposedly she was supposedly out of control, you know. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, pretty scary. It's it, it it really is. Thank you very much, Sandy, for the call. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Yeah, you know, I live here in Santa Cruz County, and we're a rather liberal place. At least that's a reputation, but. You know, you brought up uh, what might happen if Trump loses and then he calls on the right-wing militias to uh, revolt. A couple of weeks ago, a Pacific Grove cop was fired for being a member of the 3% and having anti-government stickers on his car. We had this Boogaloo boy at uh, the name of Carrillo who shot 
a sheriff's deputy here in Santa Cruz. And the reason the sheriff deputies were going after him was because he and a, and a buddy had gone up to Oakland and shot a cop up there during a Black Lives Matters protest trying to get things pinned on Black Lives Matter. So, right. you know, I'm thinking of buying a gun because if that happens, uh, we do have right-wing wackadoodles who live up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and if they want to come down into Santa Cruz and Capitola and Aptos and start shooting people thinking they must be anti-Trump, I want to be able to defend myself. Yeah. Typically, when you get into a gunfight with somebody, especially somebody who's super well-armed, it doesn't end well, but I get it. You know, I'm hearing from progressives all over the country who are, who are saying, you know, okay, enough, enough already. They're starting to get armed. I'm not sure that that's, you know, I personally don't think that that's a good thing, but I can't, I can't say don't do that, Dennis, unfortunately. I mean, you know, this, this is the tragedy of our times. Well, can we trust our cops? I mean, if a third of the cops, and I think I'm being conservative, are actually right-wing fascists. <laughs> yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? No, it's, that's the personality type that's drawn to the, to the business. Although there's a lot of really good people, maybe, yeah, <laughs> also I drawn to the idea of serving their community. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just the system is so screwed up. Dennis, thank you for the call. It's the Tom Hartman Program, exposing the con in conservative. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.